This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, what you find out in cancer drug trials when you follow them up years later. The huge disparity in cancer trials between rich and low to middle income countries and how as a result, we in rich countries may miss out. And when you look at all clinical trials in Australia, not just cancer, how there seems to be a mismatch between our burden of disease and what's actually studied. A study just published internationally, which has followed the health of Aboriginal and Torres Strait adults, Islander adults for nearly 11 years to see the impact of smoking and quitting. And the results are dramatic and stark. One of the authors was Professor Tom Calmer of the University of Canberra and is the Commonwealth's National Coordinator for Tackling Indigenous Smoking. Welcome, welcome to the Health Report, Tom. Uh, hi, Norman, and hi, Tegan. The study, tell us what you did. Well, it was an, an interesting study, and uh, and I think we should look at first the, um, you know, the evidence uh, uh, or, or what the reference that people have been using, uh, bureaucrats, is the 2003 Burden of Disease Study, which estimated that smoking caused about 20% of all deaths of Aboriginal trusted on the people. Our study was a cohort study. It looked at um, 1,388 Aboriginal trusted on the people aged 45 years and over. And we took that cohort out of a 45 and up study uh, that was conducted around about 2006. Uh, it was between 2006 2008. These people, um, uh, were, their data was captured. And then we followed them over over just over 10 years, as you indicated, and um, and looked at um, you know who survived and and uh, uh, who was affected by um, you know early death, premature deaths, and uh, who were the, who were smokers and and who weren't. So it was a, a fairly comprehensive study, and it's actually the first study to look at a cohort of Aboriginal trusted on the people. And uh, yes, it was uh, very stark because the findings found that um, when you look at the evidence. Um, that, that those people, on average, all Aboriginal trusted on the people um, uh, who smoke uh, succumb to early deaths, about 37% of our population. But if you are over 45, um, then uh, that's almost half of, of the deaths are attributed back to smoking. So, you know, it's almost doubled what we'd previously estimated. And so that uh, throws up a whole range of challenges, but it also presents a whole lot of opportunities. Before we get to that, so just to, just to make sure how stark it is, that if you were an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander person or an adult over 45, and if you've never smoked, you get a more than an 80% chance of surviving to 75 years. Um, Correct. Versus yes. 40% of well, current yes. smokers getting to 75. I mean, that's, that's enormous. Yet the good news was that if you quit before the age of 45, your chances of dying, your, your chances of getting 75 were pretty similar to those of never smokers. Yeah, correct. Yes, and and that's why we really encourage people to, uh, well, firstly, not take up smoking. But if you are, um, you know, a smoker, and if you can quit before forty-five, you've got a better chance. But you know, the other important bit about this study is that it didn't look at um, those people who are exposed to secondhand smoke, which is also a fairly significant uh, cohort of people. When we have a look at uh, other data that's been collected, we see that, um, you know, particularly children, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, as all children who um, who uh, live with a smoker or are exposed to a smoker, um, you know, uh, will inhale secondhand smoke. And that can have as detrimental impacts on, on your health as if you were an active smoker. 
When you look at the gap in terms of life expectancy, I mean, there are lots of gaps in terms of uh, mm. Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia. What, what's, how much of the gap in life expectancy is attributable to smoking? Well, it's, um, it's as, as I say, well, it's, it's we thought about twenty percent, but it's as uh, you know as significant as uh, you know forty forty uh, uh, plus percent, uh, and it, a lot depends on on also where you live because um, uh, you know and these figures are. are didn't take into account some of the regional differences. For example, we know that people living in remote um, communities, very remote communities, tend to be, um, you know, heavier smokers and have a, 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 you know, reduced life expectancy than those living in urban areas. So, so it's a very significant contributor across a whole range of chronic diseases, from uh, cardiovascular disease to to uh, cancers and uh, lung diseases and so forth. How's your campaign going in terms of indigenous smoking? What sort of changes have you been seeing over the last few years? Because a, oh, a lot of effort's gone in. Yeah, yeah, a lot of effort's gone in, and and um, you know, and I think uh, uh, it, this this shows that the effort has actually we estimate um, uh, it's a, you know just in the reduction of smoking, at least ten thousand lives have been saved in the last decade um, by just uh, you know the the gradual improvements we've seen um, at the time that this campaign kicked off, the Tackling Indigenous Smoking campaign, roughly 57% of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people uh, smoked. It's now down to about, you know, 39%, which is, uh, which is a great improvement. But when you compare it to the general population where, you know, less than 14% um, of the population smoke, and, uh, you know, we've still got a way to go when, when we look at the gap in terms of the gap. But, um, you know, we're seeing these improvements. And, you know, I must say that, you know, every day I get, um, you know, a, a real buzz when I hear stories about about how people are kicked the habit, how, how much their life has changed, how much, um, you know, the, the family life circumstances have changed because people were able to... Uh, uh, to to give up smoking, you know, we we look at reduction of smoking, but you know what we also know that that you know I think you mentioned earlier that you know even if you uh, smoke uh, up to fifteen cigarettes a day, uh, you've got almost three times uh, the mortality risk of somebody who doesn't smoke. So so the lesser smokes you smoke doesn't necessarily mean it's healthier. And just briefly, because only a few seconds left, Tom, what? are the key elements of this campaign? What do you think is the most important part of the campaign in oh. terms of reducing the incidence? Well, it's a population health approach. It's about educating people. It's about trying to overcome some of the the, the uh, habits and conditions that brought people into smoking. Colonisation was a big one. All the stresses that people experience, and I think the, the you know I think the importance of this study is that it comes at a time when when governments are, are looking at a preventive health strategy, national preventive health strategy, a, a national tobacco strategy, and so this really does say that if you can invest in prevention. It, and and, um, and that prevention is not taking up smoking, then we've got a better chance of a longer life and, and reaching that parity. But it's not going to happen overnight. This is a, a long-term investment that's needed and a really stable policy platform um, to ensure that, that we reach a lot of people and, um, and they understand the, the perils of smoking. Tom Calmer, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, Norman. Professor Tom Calmer of the University of Canberra and the Commonwealth's National Coordinator for Tackling Indigenous Smoking. And we will have the reference for that uh, paper on our website. And this is RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. Most medication trials are paid for by pharmaceutical companies to get their drug registered so it can go to market. 
You're probably now an expert in clinical trials, having watched the COVID vaccine studies. Yet these are quite simple compared to, say, trials of anti-cancer drugs. With the COVID vaccines, they want to know if they prevent disease and death. But cancer drugs are approved after phase three trials, which have all kinds of what are called endpoints, predefined outcomes. And the trial finishes when the patients have been recruited and that endpoint reached. What happens after that in the years which follow? Does the cancer drug get better results or perhaps not show its initial promise? A group in Canada has looked at the trials in breast cancer, lung and prostate to see how many have in fact been updated as time passes and what the results look like then. The findings are both disturbing and illuminating. Ian Tannock is a medical oncologist at the University of Toronto. We found in this series that only about 20% of the trials were ever updated. So you didn't have access to the mature results. And what we found was that of those 20% that were updated, there was a trend for the results to get less statistically important. That is, the size of the effect, the size of the difference got a bit less with time as you've got more mature data. We have no idea, of course, what happened in the other 80%. So there's two things that could be the case here. One is that the phase three trial was badly designed and therefore not really designed for a valid endpoint and therefore the regulator should be cracking the whip on phase three. And cancer trials are notorious for not necessarily having endpoints that really matter to patients. Does, exactly. Does the tumour come back, you know, progression-free survival, when actually I, I want to know, am I going to be alive in five years? And very few trials and cancer tell you that. So one is the design of phase three trials. And the other is what's in it for the drug company to continue sponsoring the follow-up of the data when they've got the answer they want. So that's a long question. But let's start. Is the problem here that we're pretty poor at designing phase three trials? I mean, there have been some good trials. Let's not throw all of them out. And if the effect that you see early on, the difference is big, then you're probably okay. This particular study didn't look at endpoints or outcome measures. What you say there is exactly right. But these drugs are costing hundreds of thousands of dollars and, and billions on the drug bill. And immunotherapy was touted as this great result. And, and indeed, for some people who respond to them, it's fantastic. But the average, when you look at the trials, is pretty poor. Some people got a great result, cure, long-term survival, and some people don't. Governments like the Canadian government and the Australian government are spending a lot of money on drugs that may actually not in the real world be working as well as they should. That's right. And there have been a couple of papers. Uh, one was in the British Medical Journal, for example, that looked at the EMA approvals of cancer drugs over a 10-year period. And only about half of them were ever shown to improve either the duration of survival, how long people lived, or the quality of survival. And, and when it comes down to it, there are only two aims in any medical treatment, either to help patients live longer or help them live better. And only half of the anti-cancer drugs that have been approved have actually ever shown that. And of those that were approved that did uh, show a difference in survival, the average improvement in length of survival was just under three months. Now, there are some clear winners, and uh, I mean, immunotherapy 
for people with melanoma, which is obviously very important in your country, that has been a very dramatic improvement. But those, unfortunately, are the exceptions rather than the rules. And most of the other types of treatment give much less benefit than you see with immunotherapy in melanoma. What do you think should be the response to this? Only 20% of trials in your study have any sort of update. When you update, there's what's called regression to the mean, I suppose, which means that their effect is not as great as you originally thought. I mean, this is serious. It's serious for people's expectations about cancer treatment, and it's serious in terms of taxpayers' money. What should happen? What reforms should occur? I think several. Uh, first of all, I think the ethics board should actually demand that mature results of trials should be published. They should also be more critical of the endpoints which you brought up, and certainly concentrating on survival and its quality. And then I think the registration agencies are hugely to blame. I mean, I've criticized pharmaceutical companies extensively, but at the moment, you have to say that they've done a pretty good job, some of them, in developing their COVID vaccines. So sometimes they do good things. But I think that the registration agencies, like FDA, and the EMA, and you probably have a local one in Australia as we do in Canada, but they tend to sort of follow along mainly the same lines. They need to set the bar higher. They need to look for larger effect sizes, and they need to be more critical of trials that use supposedly surrogate endpoints, as is the tumor responding or delay in the tumor progressing. That's not the same as improving survival or its quality. But I think we need to be more critical of the way that clinical trials are done. Unfortunately, I don't see much sign of that happening. If the FDA is going to essentially give approval to any anti-cancer drug that gives a statistically significant rather than clinically important difference in an approved outcome, and they generally allow outcomes like progression-free survival, time without the tumor progressing, then pharmaceutical companies are going to do the trials to allow them to market the drug. And at the moment, I don't see any sign in either the FDA or the EMA being the two biggest that they're moving to raise the bar on what is approved for marketing. And like you say, once the drugs are approved for marketing, there is absolutely no relationship between the cost at which they're sold, the price at which they're sold, and their efficacy. I mean, basically every new drug is currently being sold in the United States for something like ten to $15,000 a month, which is utterly obscene. Ian Tannock, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Ian Tannock is a medical oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre at the University of Toronto. Staying with cancer trials, another Canadian study has shown huge disparities in studies done in rich versus low and middle income countries, LMICs, with potentially enormous consequences. Christopher Booth is Professor of Oncology and Public Health Sciences at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. About five years ago, I had the chance to live and work in South India on sabbatical. So my family and I moved there and I worked at a large cancer center during that time. So over the last five years, I've become increasingly involved in what we call global oncology, which is looking to see how we can improve cancer outcomes for patients regardless of where they live. And working very closely, predominantly with my colleagues in India, I realized that there was many things that the cancer system was not doing to adequately address the public health burden of cancer worldwide and it was disproportionately focused on high-tech, expensive treatments that would only be treatment options in very rich countries and for the most part actually 
offer fairly small benefits. And so together with colleagues in the UK and India and globally, we decided to launch an investigation to test that hypothesis and to evaluate whether, in fact, global cancer research efforts matched the burden of disease. And so what we did in this study was we asked the question about, okay, let's take a look at all randomized control trials in cancer, testing new chemotherapy surgery or radiotherapy interventions. And we didn't restrict it to any high-profile journals or North American or European journals. We said, let's look at everything. So we did an exhaustive search, and we found almost 700 randomized control trials published over a period of four years, testing various forms of chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation. And the first thing that we found was we classified each study as being led by an investigator in a high-income country or in a low- or middle-income country. And so the first kind of alarm bell that emerged from the data was that 92% of all clinical trials are led by investigators in high-income countries. So then we asked the question, well, does the distribution of trials across different types of cancer match the global burden of various forms of cancer? And what we found is that it did not. We found that, in fact, cancers that are considered more common in affluent countries appear to be overrepresented. And cancers which are classically associated with poverty or seen more commonly in low- and middle-income countries are underrepresented. So specific examples are breast cancer, which represents 7% of global cancer deaths, represents 17% of all cancer clinical trials done in the world. Conversely, a cancer like esophagus or gastric cancer, which represents 14% of global cancer deaths, was underrepresented with only 6% of clinical trials. And we found similar findings for other cancers that are classically associated in low- and middle-income countries, such as liver cancer and cervical cancer, which are vastly underrepresented when it comes to global cancer research efforts. How much of this is because the vast majority of randomized controlled trials in cancer are sponsored by drug companies? In the last number of decades, the cancer research ecosystem, when it comes to randomized controlled trials, is almost exclusively driven by the pharmaceutical industry. So therefore, as you suggest, it's not surprising they are predominantly based in affluent countries and they're testing cancers where there is going to be a large market share. And not to say that we don't need clinical trials in those cancers. Obviously, those are very important, but it's therefore not totally surprising that cancers which predominantly affect patients in LMICs are understudied. But this is one of the key findings. If you go back 30, 40 years in the West, in rich countries, the capacity to do good randomized control trials was terrible. I mean, it was absolutely appalling. We had journals, and they still are to some extent, full of small, badly designed, randomized trials that didn't give you an answer yet were promoted heavily. And it's still a problem today, even in rich countries. But there's been this enormous effort through the Cochrane Collaboration and others to increase the literacy in terms of being able to do clinical trials properly. Now, you talk about lead investigators, you know, only 8% coming from lower or middle-income countries. The question is, how far, I'll, I'll use the word behind, I'll get slammed for it, but to what extent do they have the capacity and the knowledge to be able to do a good randomized trial? Because doing a lousy randomized trial is probably worse than doing no trial. No, it's a good point. So, I mean, having lived and worked in India, and, you know, my Indian colleagues would completely agree with this statement, I'm sure, is there are major gaps in infrastructure capacity and experience in some centers and LMICs to run clinical trials. And that's predominantly driven by, I guess, a handful of factors. The first is that the oncologists in those countries have huge clinical volumes. This is something so they else just don't have time on. to do research. They don't. So a busy oncologist in Australia or Canada, UK, might see 
15 or 20 or perhaps 25 patients in a day. And my colleagues in India were seeing 60, 80, sometimes 100 patients a day. So the clinical volumes are totally overwhelming. And the other thing that we're actually quite fortunate in high-income countries is that in medical training, we have a fair bit of exposure to critical appraisal, evidence-based medicine, and research methods. And this is something that traditionally has not been taught in most medical schools and LMICs. It's beginning to change. Is this a job for the Gates Foundation, for example? Yeah, I I agree, Norman. If we track clinical trials going back 20 or 30 years, the majority of them were funded by non-governmental organizations, philanthropic groups, and government grants. And the government grants in particular have become harder and harder to get. So I think to remedy this imbalance, both in the West and also in LMICs, I think we need philanthropic organizations and governments to step up and to fund clinical trials that will impact cancer care all over the world and does not only test expensive new interventions. So one of the other key findings is that in our study, we found that 87% of all clinical trials are testing drugs. Only 13% are testing surgery and radiation. At the end of the day, there's a handful of drugs that cure cancer, but most patients who are cured of cancer are cured with surgery and radiation, yet only 13% of clinical trials are testing that. And for the large part, that's because there's not a huge amount of industry interest in testing those. Moreover, even when it comes to drugs, there's numerous examples of collaboration between Canada and Australia of clinical trials that are funded by government grants or non-governmental sources. So I co-lead an international trial with colleagues actually in Sydney asking whether exercise following chemotherapy can increase the cure rate of colon cancer. You can imagine that type of research is not of interest to the pharmaceutical industry, yet those trials are very, very important for patients and to improve quality of care in the future. So we need to recalibrate the funding envelope to ensure that we can ask, you know, clearly some of the new drugs have a huge benefit for patients and we don't want to ignore those, but we've shifted so far to the other extreme that we're ignoring the opportunities to answer questions that will impact patients both in high-income countries but also fundamentally in lower resource settings. Christopher Booth is Professor of Oncology and Public Health Sciences at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. A longer version of that interview will be on our podcast with what we can learn, we can learn from low to middle-income countries. When it comes to research funding, should allocations reflect the diseases that cause the most death or the most disability? And new research in the Medical Journal of Australia has looked at the first three years of the Medical Research Future Fund allocations and found they haven't reflected the burden of disability in Australia. The MRFF is a fund set up by the federal government to give grants to high-priority areas of research. Here's Christopher Marr, one of the authors of the paper, who I spoke to earlier we divided the funding into the 17 different disease groups which are represented in the Australian Burden of Disease Study. For example, how much money went to cardiovascular disease, how much money went to skin disorders, how much money went to injuries, that sort of issue. And what did you find? For the first three years of the MRFF, we found that the way the money was distributed was quite lumpy. So there were some diseases which I guess are winners and there's other diseases which seem to miss out. So for example, cancer had quite a bit of funding, so quite about $89 million dollars. But if you're a researcher looking at things such as oral health, you sort of missed out because the amount of funding there was about $179,000. So things varied enormously across those different disease groups. So one of the things that you make a distinction between in your study is the burden of death, the, the, yeah. the diseases that cause death, and then burden of disease in disability. Why is it important to make that distinction? Well, I think it's important because the MRFF is set up to improve the health and well-being of all Australians. And, and some of that is reflected in people 
you know, losing their life. And, but it's also reflected in people who have problems in terms of what they can do in their life. So we, we have different disease metrics to talk about disease burden. So one is looking at mortality, so the number of years of life that are lost. Then we can also look at things such as, you know, how much loss of life there is due to disability. And I guess the last one is where you, you lump them all together, which is called a disability-adjusted life year. Looking at the loss of productive life when you consider loss of productive life because people have passed away, but also loss of productive life because people are disabled. How do you decide which of these two things is more important or more worthy of funding? When people are making decisions about funding and, and when we're looking at burdens of disease, people you know, are torn between whether it's about disability and death. And so usually the middle ground is to consider both of those things. And when we looked at the distribution of funding, it was explained to a reasonable ex extent by deaths, but it wasn't explained at all by disability. So the, the amount of money which is being allocated to conditions which are highly disabling is quite small. And so if we're looking at whether we're investing in improving the health and well-being of Australians, we're, we're doing it to some degree in terms of focusing on conditions which cause death, but we're ignoring the conditions which are reflected in high disability burden. Can you give some examples of the sorts of conditions that you would like to see more funding allocated? What are some examples that people would recognise? Yeah, well, I guess the ones which are really good examples of that are musculoskeletal conditions. So that's things such as back pain, arthritis and also injury. They tend to be reflected in disability and they tend to miss out on funding. Skin diseases, hearing and vision problems, those sorts of things missed out. Neurological conditions, cancer, cardiovascular disease, they did quite well. In an ideal world, funds would be allocated according to greatest need, and that's what your study is trying to determine. But what other factors do you suspect or know are going into these decisions? With the MRFF, it's got a lot of funding rounds which have priority areas. And so, the, you know, there'd be a round which focuses on diabetes and there'll be a round which focuses on dementia. And so... That's different from the NHMRC, which tends to have sort of open rounds. There are rounds for discovery and things like that, where any uh, researcher studying any disease or health condition can apply. And so what's happening with the MRFF, I guess my hypothesis is that a lot of the funding rounds are focused on these more popular or high profile conditions. And the ones which are, you know, less favourites, people tend to forget about miss out. But what I'd say is that, you know... <laughs> We only understand these things and, and I guess empathise with them when someone from our family or a loved one has a condition like this. So if, if you've had someone who's got a problem with a musculoskeletal problem, arthritis, or someone's got a hearing problem or a vision problem, you'd like that person to be looked after and to be looked after, well, we need research to inform healthcare delivery. So this particular paper looked just at the Medical Research Future Fund, as you've said. If we mm -hmm. take a broader view of other research funding in Australia and how it's allocated, does that correct this imbalance? No, it doesn't. We, we tend to see this repeated across the NHMRC and also the MRFF. And so for some reason, there are diseases and health conditions which are more commonly funded than others. And my background is I'm a musculoskeletal health researcher, but I think it's broader than not funding musculoskeletal health conditions. If you look at what we found, there's a lot of health conditions which, which miss out and, and things such as oral health and skin disorders, they're just as important. We need to fund those adequately as well. Are there other possible explanations for the imbalance that you've found? Are there maybe some types of research are more expensive to, to run or perhaps they're just bigger, bigger studies that are done into diseases that cause death? We thought about that because that's a great hypothesis. So we went back and redid the analysis just looking at the number of grants and, and no, it doesn't explain it. It's not that cardiovascular grants are more expensive than musculoskeletal. They're missing out in terms of dollars and they're also missing out in terms of the number of grants that are being awarded. Whose job is it to fix this? 
the person who's primarily responsible is the health minister. But I guess we need to raise the issue because I don't think we've actually had a conversation about this. Probably it's time to take a deep breath and think, you know, the MRFS has done some wonderful things. We've had three years of funding. Maybe we need to stop and think, you know, are there some health conditions which are missing out and have some priority rounds to look at those and, and think about going back to the original framework of the MRFF, which is to improve the health and well-being of all of Australians. And so really that means that we need to fund research across all the health conditions which cause disease burden in Australia. Chris Ma, thanks for joining us on The Health Report. Thank you. Christopher Ma is a professor at the Sydney School of Public Health and director of the Institute for Musculoskeletal Health at the University of Sydney. And we put the findings of the paper and comments made by Professor Ma to the health department. A spokesperson for the department said that while the MRFF funding addresses conditions with high burden of disease, the priorities of the fund are determined by the Australian Medical Research Advisory Board and involve a public consultation process. And you can find the full statement from the health department on our website. Well, thanks for that, Tegan. A lot on clinical trials there. No, this time on the Health Report podcast, we answer people's questions or hear their comments. What have you got today? That's right. Well, if you're a listener, uh, which I'm guessing you are if you're hearing this right now, you can send your questions and comments to healthreport at abc.net.au. But Genevieve has written in Norman and she really likes the fact that we provide evidence-based information and she's asking for a bit on complex post-traumatic stress disorder and eating disorders. What is the research that's been done regarding links between the two and are there any treatments that are coming out that address both? Look, I think that I'd rather expand beyond this rather than dealing with things you know, specifically with, with this. I think that in general, people who've experienced trauma and have serious anxiety disorders as a result of that trauma, and PTSD is one of them, post-traumatic stress disorder, it's often underestimated the impact that that has on people's lives in terms of causing psychological distress and chronic distress. And, you know, on this week's program, we talked to Tom Karma about smoking And of course, one of the reasons for high smoking rates in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities is disenfranchisement, a feeling of not belonging, a loss of control, uh, high levels of psychological distress. And and those all are important factors in terms of high smoking rates in Aboriginal communities. And until you deal with some of those issues, you're actually not going to be able to deal with smoking. So that's one of the reasons, Tom didn't get into this, that you've still got smoking rates in the 30% rather than in the 10 or 15% level. And that stress isn't good for your health, regardless of smoking or not. Correct. And it has profound effects, and we've covered this many times over the years on the health report. So I think that the message here is that uh, you shouldn't underestimate that if you've had trauma in your in your background that it has an impact on you. And when you're you know, seeing somebody about these things, you've actually got to be able to deal with that as well. Now, I mean, there's a whole debate, and you probably know about this, Tegan, as well, around whether or not opening, you know, really digging into the trauma and getting to the bottom of it and really revisiting it makes a difference because there is a a school of thought that it actually re-traumatizes you and reinforces the trauma. But a good psychologist in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy can help you deal with the impact of that. And if one of the impacts is eating disorders, whether that's overeating, undereating, bulimia, we can only assume that that will help uh, in that situation too. And of course, family therapy is extremely important for eating disorders as well. Eating disorders are one of those situations where because they can display so differently among people, if you don't look like the traditional patient of an eating disorder, sometimes people find it hard to get the help that they need. But of course, there are services like the Butterfly Foundation that can help people go in the right direction. 
And remember, eating disorders as well, just they display in slightly different ways and often in terms of over-exercising and um, aiming for the extremely low-fat body. That's often a manifestation, you know, exercise, over-exercising is often a manifestation of an eating disorder in males. And as you say, it's, uh, those things don't occur in a vacuum. No. So Lynn's got a question about a comment that you made last week, Norman, and you sort of said it as a bit of a throwaway line, multiple sclerosis is now curable. And that's really piqued her interest because she didn't know that that was the case. Can you expand on that, please? Yeah. I mean, I was surprised at this when I discovered it, when um, a member of my family had multiple sclerosis and ended up on therapy that was aiming to cure him. And I wasn't aware of this either, and I should have been. So what's happened with multiple sclerosis, and it's really, it's not quite unique, but it's almost unique amongst autoimmune diseases, is that they found out a lot about the white blood cells that go wrong with this, and they've been able to develop targeted drugs at those white blood cells that attack the myelin sheath, the insulation around the nerves. And they're, they're pretty effective. And as they've done that, they've also found a medication, I think it's only one at the moment, which is very effective at permanently suppressing this immune reaction. It does have side effects. It doesn't work in everybody. But if it doesn't work first time, it works again. I I can't remember the statistics. I should have swatted them up knowing this question (laughs) was coming. But I think that in the first round of treatment, 30 or 40% of people get permanent resolution of their multiple sclerosis, at least in the terms of follow-up so far, and that you can have a second course and you get another effect of the drug on top. So it doesn't cure everybody or permanently suppress the disease, but it does have side effects, and some of the side effects are quite major, and you are susceptible to um, particular infections, which are, are a problem. But it does have side effects, and you need to monitor them quite closely, as do the other treatments for multiple sclerosis. And uh, sometimes you have to switch drugs because, and they want to monitor these very carefully. So this is not an easy answer, but it does work for a significant percentage of people. So multiple sclerosis is a degenerative disease. Can it reverse these effects or does it just kind of halt it at whatever stage you are when you start that treatment? Very good question. Don't know the answer to it. <laughs> uh, and one last question today from Kev. Uh, sorry, but what I do know is that it halts the, the progressive nature of it. Um, but whether or not you get significant healing, I, I think you can get a bit of healing, but I'm not sure uh, you know, this is, you're getting beyond my pay grade here. I feel like this is something we might need to investigate further on the health report, yeah, let, Norman. Let's get somebody who actually knows what they're talking about on the program for a change. <laughs> All right. One last question from Kev, who's trying to understand the difference between traditional vaccine tech and the new mRNA slash DNA tech. What's different with an mRNA vaccine compared to, say, an inactivated flu virus vaccine? Well, an mRNA vaccine just contains the genetic message for the cell to produce, in this case, the spike protein or part of the spike protein of the coronavirus. It's not DNA, it's RNA, which is, just sends a message into the soup of the cell to manufacture this. It's in fact what the virus does anyway. That's what the, the RNA virus does. It goes into the cell and tells the cell to produce the whole virus. This time, the, the vaccine just tells you to produce a little bit of the spike protein that the, then goes outside the cell and the immune system responds to that and develops a memory to the spike protein. Um, the other kinds of vaccines are the DNA vaccines, which in fact is the, if you look at the Novavax vaccine, for example, they're also called protein vaccines, where you're directly injecting a synthetic form of the spike protein manufactured in a vat. And I think it's uh, an insect 
insect cells with the Novavax vaccine. It's a, it's a no, right? it's an odd it's an odd medium that they use, not not E. coli with some other ways they use this. So you can inject the, the protein itself with what's called an adjuvant, which stimulates the immune system. And uh, that directly immunizes without having to you know, involve the genetic material of the cell. And there are various DNA vaccines on the market already. And um, there, there are vaccines that many people listening have already had. The flu vaccine, on the other hand, the flu vaccine is a problem because they've not found a way of safely giving you a live flu vaccine. So if you get measles vaccine, it's called an attenuated live virus. So it's the whole virus but it's been hobbled so that it doesn't multiply in your body. But it gives you a very effective immune response. The flu virus, they've not really been, had a lot of success with a live flu vaccine. So most flu vaccines are inactivated virus. So it's, it's, if you like, it's dead virus, which they give you. But it only gives you a limited immune response, and which I think is 50 or 60% effective. It depends on your age and, um, and, and your own personal makeup. Interestingly, one of the Chinese vaccines in coronavirus is also an inactivated virus, and it's proving not very effective either. So they, ha- they are trying that with the coronavirus, but it's giving you the whole virus, and you get kind of a broad brush immune reaction to that. So part of Kev's question was he was concerned that maybe the new tech might be teaching our bodies to create bad cells as part of the process. But, of course, those those technologies don't create whole cells. They're just creating a tiny little strand of protein, which is not even the whole virus itself, and that's enough for our bodies to create that immune response. Yeah, that's why it's, the technology is so cool, is that it's just <laughs> that little bit and not giving you the virus. Well, that's all I've got for you in the mailbag today, Norman. But like we said before, if you want to ask a question, ask us, healthreport at abc.net.au. And it's time you asked the curly one of Tegan, so I'm looking forward yeah. to the questions for Tegan. I can handle it. Good. <laughs> see, see you next, next time. Yeah, see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.